My father-in-law loves to tell the story of the day he was in an airport. He was sitting at his gate, minding his own business and waiting for his plane to come. When a blind African-American gentleman came and sat next to him, and when he looked up, he saw that it was not just a blind African-American man, but a whole team of bodyguards and security. He didn't know who this person was, but clearly they must have been important. He came back home and told his family what had happened. I haven't even had a brief conversation with this man. And then one day, a Diet Pepsi commercial came on the TV, and there is Ray Charles singing, You Got the Right One Baby, Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. And he pointed to the screen and said, That's him, that's the man I saw in the airport, that's the man I met. He loves to tell that story of the time he met Ray Charles, but didn't know who he was. He didn't recognize him. He didn't realize that he was in the presence of someone famous and someone important. Our passage this morning in Luke chapter 5, we see those that have been following Christ begin to recognize who he is. They begin to see him with new eyes. They begin to realize for the first time who this person is that has been in their presence. They begin to realize that he's not just a man not just a prophet, and not just the Messiah, but someone so much more. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 5. And because I was overwhelmed by the size of the passage I chose, I've shortened it. Your bulletin is wrong. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 32. We've been looking at the book of Luke over the last couple of months, considering... Luke's account of Jesus' life and ministry, Luke spends more time in Jesus' early years than any of the other gospel writers, establishing his genealogy, establishing his early years, his miraculous birth, being born of a virgin, his uh, incredible um, birth in obscurity, and how in this way he became a man, God become man, so that he could... Save all of humanity, any that would turn from their sins and trust in Him. We've come to Luke chapter 5, and Jesus begins in His ministry to call disciples to follow Him. If you're taking notes, our main point this morning from the text is this. True disciples recognize Jesus, recognize their sin, and repent. True disciples recognize Jesus, recognize their sin, and repent. And as we walk through the text, we'll have four points this morning. And these are four verbs. Verses 1 to 11, Jesus disciples. Verses 12 to 16, Jesus cleanses. Verses 17 to 26, Jesus forgives. And verses 27 to 32, Jesus calls. Jesus disciples. Jesus cleanses, Jesus forgives, and Jesus calls. It's my prayer this morning that we would have eyes to recognize Jesus, to see Him clearly, and to repent and follow Him. Let's begin by reading the first part of our passage this morning, verses 1 to 11. Follow along with me as I read Luke 5, 1 to 11. This is God's Word. On one occasion, 
while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. We see at the beginning of our passage here that Jesus continues on with his ministry as he has described it at the end of Luke chapter 4. We saw the last time that in Luke chapter 4, Jesus articulates his purpose in coming. Jesus had people who were excited to have the Messiah and who had an agenda for him. They had a purpose for him, but his purpose was not theirs. They were excited to have a Messiah if he would free them from the oppressive Roman Empire. And when he didn't do that, when he refused to do that, they got angry and were ready to kill him. We saw at the end of Luke chapter 4 that people were excited about the healing and about the miracles. And they were ready for him to stay and continue doing great things. But Jesus isn't even willing to surrender to the purpose of these people who wanted the good things he was doing because he had a greater purpose. You see at the end of Luke chapter 4 and verse 43, if you turn back. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. You see, Jesus' purpose was to come bringing a message, the message of the kingdom. The message of the kingdom of God was the message that the king has come. Jesus is this king, the promised Messiah, the one who had been prophesied about in the Old Testament. He is David's son the true king who will rule over Israel and God's people forever. And it is this message of the good news of the gospel that he must preach. That's the reason he's come, to declare this message. See, there is something important about this preaching that even we must hold on to as we follow in Jesus' footsteps and example. We see that happening here at the beginning of chapter 5 and Luke continues to highlight it throughout this section that Jesus is teaching, that he's preaching, that he's communicating truth, and that that is the most important thing he's doing. And while he does miracles, these miracles are to be coming alongside that message and demonstrating it to be true and helping people to realize what it means for them. So here's Jesus teaching the crowds. The crowds are pressing in so much that he gets into a boat. He asks to borrow a boat there of Simon, which is... Peter. Jesus renamed Simon Peter. It looks like Peter and Andrew and James and John, four of his disciples are here at this scene. He asked them to 
push the boat out a bit so that he can preach from the boat and not get pushed into the water. After he's finished teaching, he does something remarkable. He tells Peter, a fisherman, how to fish, what to do. Now, Peter's a fisherman. He knows how to fish. He's the expert in this area. He's the one who's been up all night because he knows you catch more fish at night than you do during the day. These fish are nocturnal. In fact, I think he's probably exhausted if he's been fishing all night and tired. And having just finished cleaning his nets, he's probably ready to go to sleep as anyone would who works the night shift. And what does Jesus tell him to do? He tells him to go fishing. Now you can sense in Peter's response something of his frustration. Imagine being finished with your job and then being told by someone who's not an expert in your area what to do. But what does he do? He shows his respect for Jesus and his word, and he does it. Do you notice what Peter says? At your word, I will do it. Do you notice at the beginning that when it talked about Jesus' teaching, it says that they were actually hearing the word of God? Now, I think anyone who was interested in hearing Jesus as a prophet would assume that a prophet would be speaking the word of God. He is a a messenger from God, speaking the truth that comes from God, as all prophets were, mouthpieces of God. Jesus is about to show that he's not just a prophet communicating God's message as simply a mouthpiece for God, but that he's more than that, that when he speaks, God speaks, because Jesus is God become man. So Peter, at Jesus' word, lets the nets down. And what happens? An incredible miracle. They catch more fish than they've ever caught before. They catch so much fish in their nets that they can't pull it up themselves. They need to call for backup. They catch so much fish that they can't fit it all in their boat and their friends' boats. And they catch so much fish that the boats begin to sink. This is an incredible miracle. And these people are shocked by it, as anyone would be. Now, there are many people who have attempted to debunk the Bible, saying that, oh, these people were just superstitious people. People who were always looking for miracles, and who got excited about some small miracles they saw, and then... As the reports spread, they got bigger and bigger, just like a a fish story gets bigger and bigger when you tell a story about catching a fish, right? It was this big, and then the next time you tell it, it was this big, and the next time, it was this big. But these fishermen are practical people. They're practical people who know how things work. And when a catch like this happens, they know that this isn't normal. They're not superstitious. They're practical people. And what does Peter realize when this miracle happens? He comes into the presence of Christ, and what does he say? Look at verse 8. He falls down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. How is Peter responding to what he's seen Jesus do, to what Jesus' word has done in speaking And then having all of these fish respond. He's responding the way that people in the Old Testament responded when they were in the presence of God. Remember Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah is translated, transported 
into the throne room of God, and he stands in the presence of God on his throne, and he sees him in all of his holiness and greatness and beauty. And how does Isaiah respond? Woe is me. In other words, I'm a dead man, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Peter is realizing that he's not simply in the presence of a prophet, or even just the Messiah, but in the presence of God himself in human flesh. He's realizing that Jesus is God. That when Jesus speaks, the Creator speaks. That when Jesus speaks, the creation responds. Jesus was there at the beginning, speaking all of creation into existence. And when the Creator shows up in human flesh and speaks, the creation responds. That's what happened in this miracle. That's what Peter finally recognizes. He realizes who Jesus is, and he responds as all of us should respond in the presence of holy God, with humility, and with a confession that what he deserves from a holy God is judgment and condemnation. Jesus came to preach this good news that we heard about. And the good news begins with the realization that God is holy. That God is holy, that he is perfect, that he dwells in absolute perfection and purity. And he's so pure that no sin or uncleanness can come into his presence. That those that are sinful and unclean like us deserve to be destroyed by him. You see, all of us are sinners. All of us deserve such judgment and wrath. All of us on our own would be destroyed by God's holy wrath. But yet look at Jesus' response to Peter. When Peter responds in humility, what does he tell him? Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, Peter. You know, this is the most often repeated command in all of Scripture. Do not be afraid. As people are in the presence of God, they fear for their lives. And when many of us are in the presence of scary things in this world, we are afraid. And look how Jesus responds to Peter's right fear. To not be afraid. Why? Because Jesus hasn't come to condemn him. But as we'll see later in our passage, to call sinners to repentance. He's come to save sinners like Peter. Peter responds to this message in humility. But then he responds in another way. He says, he and the other men, James and John, they leave everything and they follow him. See, Jesus is about to make disciples. Jesus' disciples, point number one. Verses 1 to 11. Jesus disciples people. He is calling people to come and to be with him and to follow him, to learn from him, and to imitate him in his ministry. It's remarkable what these men are willing to do. Do you know what they're leaving behind? They're leaving behind their nets, their boat. Uh, Mark chapter 1 records that they leave their father in the boat with the net. You see, when they're leaving behind their nets and their boats, they're not just leaving behind their occupation, their their vocation, their way of making money and providing for themselves. They're even having to say goodbye to family. They're leaving behind the hopes of their parents. Uh, in, In the ancient world, as in many rural societies today, people didn't grow up wondering, what will I be when I grow up? There was no question of this. You would become what your father was. You would carry on the family work, the family business. 
And yet these people are leaving all of that behind to follow Jesus. As Jesus disciples these people, he is going to convert them to a new vocation. Look at how he describes what he is going to disciple them into being. Fishermen, but a different kind of fishermen, verse 10. From now on, you'll be catching men. That word means people, even though it's in the masculine. Rather than catching fish, selling those fish at the market, you're now going to be catching people. You are going to be imitating Christ and catching people. That is, preaching the message that I'm preaching. And through you, being used by God to draw sinners to salvation through Christ. You see, when God saves people, he calls us into a new kind of vocation or ministry. Whether it's in a full-time way, as these disciples and apostles would be called into, or whether in a part-time way, all of us who follow Christ are commissioned to a new vocation. A vocation of being used by him to catch people. You can do this by communicating the truth about Christ to your friends, to your neighbors, your co-workers and those around you. You can do this by taking part in the ministry of the local church, serving ministries of the church, giving to things like missions. You can take part in helping us to catch people, helping us to preach the gospel and win people to Christ. This is point number one, Jesus disciples. Point number two, Jesus cleanses. Verses 12 to 16. Let's read those verses. Point number two, Jesus cleanses, starting in verse 12. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded for a proof to them. But now even the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places. Point number two, Jesus cleanses. The second section Jesus is now healing, but healing in a most remarkable way. Someone comes into his presence who has leprosy. Now, a bit of of Bible background to this account. In leprosy was any kind of skin disorder or disease. It would involve any kind of skin uh, rash, all the way up to the kind of Uh, unbelievable leprosy that would involve skin falling off and rotting away. But regardless of how bad this particular case of leprosy is, what this meant for people in, in Israel, in this Jewish context, was that they were outcasts of society. According to God's law, people who were, uh, who had leprosy were considered unclean and had to be ostracized from society. In order to protect the other people from Uh, getting this skin disorder, for many were contagious. But also as an illustration of what our sin is like, that our sin makes us unclean. So much of the Old Testament ritual law in the Old Testament was teaching this very basic fact that all of us 
are unclean. That our sin makes us unclean. And that our sin in the presence of a holy God deserves God's punishment and wrath. You know, this is what the Gospel tells us about us. That naturally, because of our sin, the sin that we inherited from our forefathers, from our parents, that this makes us unclean. And that as we go about our lives, living lives of sin, we continue to defile ourselves with our sin. And that defilement comes from inside of us. It isn't simply the things outside of us, but it's actually the things inside of us. And leprosy is a picture of the effects of our sin. And this man was being ostracized from society. Now, the process for a a, a leper to be made clean was he would have to show himself to a priest and demonstrate that he no longer had the leprosy and would have to bring an offering. And Jesus tells him to do this. But there is not a record in the Old Testament of anybody being cleansed of leprosy or anyone who had leprosy being healed of it. The only person in the Old Testament that we know of being healed of leprosy, other than Miriam, who has it for a very short time, is Naaman, the Syrian, the Gentile who was unclean for two reasons. He was unclean because he was a Gentile and not a Jew, but he was also unclean because of his leprosy. And yet, because of the faith that he demonstrated in God, he was cleansed of his leprosy as he humbled himself to going down into the Jordan River seven times and finally being cleansed of his leprosy. Now, there's many laws throughout the Old Testament that are in the Pentateuch, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, that are then referenced throughout the prophets. How uncleanness works. Uncleanness is transferred from one person to another by touch. And if someone is touched by someone who is unclean, that person becomes unclean too. In other words, uncleanness is something that spreads. It's like cancer. It grows and spreads. And it's transferred through touch. The remarkable thing about this story is this man comes into Jesus' presence and he says a remarkable thing. If you will, if you desire it, Jesus, you can make me clean. You know what he's confessing by saying this? He's saying that he recognizes who Jesus is. He's saying by his statement, by his request, I know who you are, Jesus. You are the one who has come to make unclean people clean and you have the power to do it if you would will to do it. Look at how Jesus responds. I will be clean. And even though he has the power to do things like this simply with his word, because he is God, and when he speaks, his will is done, Jesus does something more. He doesn't just speak the cleansing into existence. He touches the man. It says that he touched him. Now, as, as those who have something of a background now and how uncleanness works, you'll realize that the first thought is, oh no, Jesus is now going to become unclean. He's touching this man with leprosy. He's now going to have to step away from society. Maybe he's going to get leprosy. Is that what happened? Is Jesus defiled by the uncleanness of this man? Is he defiled by the leprosy? No, the exact opposite. What happens when Jesus touches this unclean man? Power goes out from him and the unclean are cleansed. The leper is made new. Jesus' power through his touch, his tender touch, changes this unclean man and makes him clean. 
takes this leper and makes him new. This is who Jesus is. He is one who cleanses the unclean. And just as all of Jesus, uh, all of Jesus' miracles teach us something about a deeper reality, what Jesus did was not simply heal this man of leprosy. He's actually cleansing this man of his sin. He's not just dealing with the effects of this man's sin. He is making him new. This is what Jesus has come to do, to make the unclean clean. Do you know that Jesus has come for outcasts in society? Jesus is tender and aware of those that aren't accepted by others. Do you know that he has eyes to see those that are hurting and weak, those that are ignored by the larger society? Do you know that's how we should be as we follow as Jesus' disciples. We should be like Jesus and having a tender love and care for those around us that we see that are ignored, those that are downtrodden, those that are hurting, those that are unclean. We should be characterized by such tenderness and love. I wonder if you have such tenderness for those around you that are hurting. We say in our uh, church covenant, that we are to be weeping with those who weep, as well as rejoicing with those who rejoice. I find it easier to rejoice with those who rejoice than to weep with those who weep. I wonder if you have such tenderness as Jesus did to see those around you who are hurting, to reach out to them and to imitate Christ by showing tender love by those who need it. That's point number two, Jesus cleanses. Point number three, Point number three, Jesus forgives. We'll pick up in verse 17. Point number three, Jesus forgives. 17. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea, and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in, because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what, had, uh, what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. In the next scene, Jesus does a remarkable healing. But before he heals this paralyzed man, he does something even more remarkable. He claims to forgive this man's sins. We see here that there are religious leaders here who are in the presence of Jesus. They seem to show up wherever Jesus is uh, with a very critical and cynical eye, criticizing everything that he does, trying to find flaws and loopholes in everything that he does, trying to prove him wrong. In fact, they're jealous of him. They're jealous of the fact that others listen to Jesus, that others follow him, that others see him as an authority. They see it as a threat to their power and to their authority. 
these people are there listening to Jesus teach, when these men come bringing this paralyzed man with them. I love this account. It's so human. Imagine having a beloved friend or relative who's sick, who's paralyzed, who's hurting, and hearing that there's someone who can heal him. I love the faith of these men to bring their friend or relative to Jesus. You know, this is what we should do as Christians. Rather than attempting to be the Savior for others, we should be like these friends, taking people to Jesus, bringing people to the one who can meet their ultimate need. Much of the Christian life, I think we could say, is simply helping point others to Jesus, helping to bring others to Jesus, helping people understand who Jesus is, and helping people find their true healing and salvation in Jesus. I love that these people are so deliberate. They won't take no for an answer. There's no way to get into the house. And so they offend everybody by tearing off the roof in order to drop this guy down into the middle of it. They're not even going to sit around and wait. This man must be healed. Jesus rewards their faith. says that he saw their faith. That their forceful activity is generated by faith. You see, they recognize Jesus for who he is. And they realize that he and he alone is the one who can heal. And even more than that, to forgive. Look at the debate that goes on here. Jesus reading the debate going on in people's thoughts. Jesus knows their thoughts as they are debating with him in their minds. And he responds to their thoughts with this truth. Look at the question he asks. What is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you? Or rise and walk? I wonder if you've thought about such a question. In some ways, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven you. Because that's something spiritual and invisible. And you don't have to prove that you did it. You could say, yes, I've just forgiven that person's sins. But it's actually the hardest thing to do. Jesus is forgiving sins. And then he allows the miracle to be the proof that he has the right and the authority to do it. But think of how staggering it is that Jesus says that he forgives sins. He is, in fact, doing what these people say is impossible to do. That it's only God who can forgive sins. And that's the point. Jesus is God. Now, imagine uh, imagine someone coming to my door when I'm not there. And my wife or my kids answering the door. And someone coming and saying, oh, is Jason home? And finding out that I'm not there. And saying, well, I've actually come to apologize for something. I, I sinned against Jason. And my wife or my kids saying, well, I can forgive you for him. You're forgiven. He's not here, but I'm sure he'd forgive you, so you're forgiven. Does it work that way? Is that how forgiveness works? Can someone that hasn't been hurt or offended forgive on behalf of someone else? You realize what Jesus is doing here. He is claiming to be God. He is saying, I am God, and your sins are primarily against me. And all of your sins can be forgiven by me because I am God. And I can offer true and real and lasting and permanent forgiveness. You know, often we think of sin primarily in terms of its effect on other people. We often think of sin simply on a horizontal level. 
Sin is bad because it hurts people. Sin is bad because it offends them. Sin is bad because it breaks up relationships. Sin is bad because it's harmful to other people. Now, all of those things are true. But do you know what this passage is saying? What so much of the Bible says? That all of our sins, while they are great when they hurt other people, there's an even greater thing going on when it comes to sin. Because our sin is primarily against God. Our sin is primarily an offense against God. When David in Psalm 51 prays a prayer of repentance for his sins and his sin against Bathsheba and Uriah and so many other people that he sinned against in that section. Yes, he committed adultery. He stole another person's wife. He had the wife's husband killed. He sinned against so many people. But when he prays a prayer of confession and repentance in Psalm 51... He says, against you and you only, God, have I sinned. See, our sin is an offense against God. God has created us. He's made us. Our holy God made us in His image. And He created us to know Him, to love Him, and to image Him, to reflect something of what He is like. And rather than doing that, we've done the opposite. We have misrepresented Him in every way. We have, with our lives, told lies about who God is and what He's like. And our sin in the presence of a holy God, yes, it makes us unclean. But it is offensive to Him. And God is good and right and just to punish us. The Bible tells us that He does punish sin and sinners, and He will punish sin and sinners forever. In fact, He created hell as a place of permanent and eternal punishment for sinners because our sin is primarily offense against Him. But look at what Jesus does. Jesus forgives. Jesus forgives sin. And He isn't doing this on behalf of God. He's doing this as God. He is offering forgiveness to anyone that will come to Him in faith, recognizing who He is, recognizing their sin, turning from it and trusting in Him. What He has done on the cross in our place. And that's how Jesus forgives sin. He takes our sin upon Himself and He pays the full penalty of it on the cross. And He did not stay dead. He rose from the grave after three days demonstrating His power over sin and death and offering salvation to any that will recognize Him, recognize their sin, and turn from it. This man experiences true forgiveness. And then he experiences healing as a proof that Jesus can forgive sins. I think often we think of these miracles. It's amazing that Jesus can do a miracle. There's a much more important miracle going on here than simply a paralyzed man standing up. Though that is amazing. The greater miracle is that a sinful man who deserves God's eternal punishment has been forgiven through faith. See, Jesus sees his faith and responds, forgiving him. This is the good news of the gospel and of Jesus Christ. That God has come. And He hasn't come in wrath, but He's come to forgive. That's point number three, Jesus forgives. Point number four, Jesus calls. Point number four, Jesus calls. Verses 27 to 32. Jesus is going to go on and call more disciples. 
Verse 27, after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Point number four, Jesus calls. Jesus calls another unlikely disciple. At the beginning, he called four unlikely disciples fishermen. Fishermen were not seen in their society as the great people of society. Um, one of the reasons is they smell bad. When you spend that much time with fish, you don't get the fish smell off of you. Another reason is because they're laborers. They're hardworking fishermen. But Jesus calls unlikely people to be his disciples and to follow him. It isn't the cut above the rest in society that Jesus calls. He calls very unlikely people to follow him. Here he calls another unlikely person from another place in society. He calls a tax collector. Now for context, this guy's name is Levi. That means that he's a Jew. It probably means that he's a Levite, descended from Aaron, the tribe that Moses was a part of, Moses' brother Aaron. And Aaron and his children were called the Levites. And the priests who represented God's people to God in the tabernacle and the temple. The guy's name is Levi, but it says that he's a tax collector. What can we deduce from this? Well, according to the Jews of his day, he was a traitor. He's a Jew working for the oppressive Roman Empire. He's collecting taxes on behalf of the oppressive Roman Empire. And he's getting rich at the expense of his fellow Jewish men and women collecting their taxes for this oppressive Roman Empire. Tax collectors were hated in Jesus' day. Uh, Zacchaeus was also a tax collector. And we, saw, we see later in Luke that Zacchaeus has defrauded lots of people with his tax collecting, and this is what they were known to do. They would set their tax rates higher than what Rome required, and they were allowed to do this. It sounds like they would probably work together with the other tax collectors and set some tax amount higher than they were than they needed to collect in order to pad their own pockets, in order to grow their own portfolios. And these people were hated. And yet, Jesus calls Levi, a tax collector, to follow him. Levi then throws, uh, it looks like, a party for Jesus and invites all of his friends to come and meet Jesus, the one that he has left tax collecting behind for to follow. And they come. It's remarkable that they come to spend time with Jesus. And this leads to more grumbling. This leads to more complaining by the religious leaders. They're complaining at the kinds of people that Jesus is willing to associate with. And the assumption is, well, if you're willing to associate with people like this, you must be as bad as they are. And what does Jesus say about this? He gives them an illustration, verse 31. Those who are well have no need of a physician or a doctor, but those who are sick. And what's Jesus saying here? Is he saying that the religious leaders don't need a doctor? No, they do. 
The problem with these religious leaders is they're sick and don't realize it. They don't recognize their sin and the fact that they need a physician. And Jesus says, I have not come for the righteous. To call the righteous, he says. Though none is righteous, but I've come to call sinners to repentance. The problem with these religious leaders isn't that they aren't sinners. They are. It isn't that they're not sick. They are. So they don't recognize their sickness and they don't recognize their sin. They are righteous in their own eyes. They're looking down at others, the outcasts in society, looking down their noses at them and assuming that they're better than these other people. And in their pride, setting themselves up, they are putting themselves in a place where they cannot be saved by Christ. They're not able to accept reality, to recognize their sin for what it is. Jesus calls all kinds of people to come and to follow him. The remarkable thing is the kinds of people that come to follow Christ. It's not the the, the likely characters. It isn't the people that we would think of as righteous. It's the people who realize they're sinners that flock to Jesus because they realize their need of him. And Jesus is willing for any that will turn from their sins and trust in him. To be their savior. Just like with the unclean man, Jesus isn't worried about these sinners rubbing off on him. He is able to make all kinds of sinners holy through the salvation that he brings. But the only thing he requires is that we recognize our need of him and turn from our sins and follow him. The call of Jesus is a call to repentance. It's a call to turn from our sins and to follow him. Thomas Watson, in his wonderful work on the nature of repentance, lists six things that are ingredients of true repentance. If you're taking notes, take them quickly. The first thing is sight of sin. The first ingredient in true repentance is to see sin for what it is. Second ingredient is sorrow for sin. Not only do we recognize that we're sinners, but we are truly sorry for it. The third is confession of sin. We're not only sorry for it, but we actually confess our sin to God. We bring it to Him knowing that He's the only one who can forgive us. The fourth ingredient is shame for sin. Not only do we see it and confess it, but we're ashamed of it. We feel that true shame for it, and we turn away and walk away from it. A fifth ingredient is hatred for sin. Not only are we ashamed of it, but we hate it. We work against it. And lastly, number six, it's turning from sin. This is ingredients in true repentance. This is what the gospel demands of us, that we repent of our sins and that we trust in Christ. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. They are the proper response to the the true gospel message. When we understand who God is, when we understand that He's holy and that we deserve punishment, when we understand this message of mercy and grace, that God forgives sinners through Christ, what the gospel demands of us is that we repent of our sins and believe in Christ. Helpful illustration of this. Repentance is what, what it is that we let go of and turn from in order to hold on to Christ. My favorite book as a boy was Where the Red Fern Grows. Uh, In this book, which was often read by children in elementary schools, 
a boy in the Ozark Mountains is raising hound dogs to hunt coons, raccoons. His grandfather is helping him catch his first raccoon and tells him, you can trap a raccoon if you drill a small hole and put shiny things inside of a, of a log, like screws or nails or something metallic. But make the hole small enough that the raccoon can put his hand in, um, but also small enough that when he grips those shiny things in there, he won't be able to pull his fist out again. The boy thinks, this is crazy. That's not going to catch a raccoon. All he has to do is let go, and he can go free. But it works. I don't know if this is true or if it's just in the book, but it's a wonderful illustration. (laughs) He ends up catching his first raccoon this way. The raccoon grabs the shiny things and holds that fist tight, but he can't get his hand out of the log, and he's caught, and he's killed. You know, this is how repentance works. This is how sin works. There's things in this world that we hold on to, we grip it tight, we refuse to let go. But repentance means letting go of our sin, letting go of our own hopes to be righteous on our own, letting go of anything that would keep us from God, anything that would defile us and make us unclean, letting it go and going free, turning and trusting in Christ and having our sins forgiven. But if we're to do this, we must truly let go of everything that God calls us to. I don't know what it is that you might be holding on to, like that raccoon in the trap that would keep you from running after Christ and holding on to Him. It may be like some of the religious leaders here, your own self-righteousness. It may be that you're proud, that you think you deserve a right standing with God because of your life, because you've been good, because you've been righteous, because you've given up things. Maybe what you're holding on to is your own self-righteousness. And what God is calling you to do just as Jesus is calling these religious leaders to do, is to let go of your self-righteousness. To let go of any hopes of making yourself right with God based on your own life or your own good works and realizing there's nothing you can do to contribute to your salvation. Only Christ does that. Let me encourage you, friend. Let go of your self-righteousness. For others, it may be the things of this world that you're holding on to. It may be even good things in this world that you're gripping tightly and won't let go. It may be good things like even family, like Peter and James and John had to let go of as they walked away from family and family business to follow Christ. It may be something even not bad, like money or security or possessions that you're holding on to tightly. It may be the pleasures of sin in this world that you're delighting in and holding on to. There's nothing of sin and of this world that you can hold on to and still have salvation. When it comes to the things of this world and our sin, and when it comes to Christ, these two are diametrically opposed. If you think of the illustration of a magnet or magnetism, you cannot be holding on and drawn to the world with one hand and attempting to also hold on to Christ with the other. You'll be torn in two. It will not work. It is impossible. The only way that you can go from being drawn to this world to being propelled to Christ is like a magnet being flipped around going from being drawn to being repelled, just as magnets can, if you flip them around, go from being drawn to being pushed away and repelled. We must turn. We must repent. And we must walk away from anything that would keep us from Christ. I don't know what it is that you may be holding on to this morning. 
I'm not sure what it is that your hopes are holding on to. I'm not sure what it is that Christ may ask you to give up to follow Him. It isn't everyone that has to leave a job necessarily to follow Christ. But whatever it is that Christ calls you to give up, let me encourage you, friend, brother, sister, let go. Be free to run and follow Christ. We see in our passage that Christ is willing to accept any that come to him, even those that are uh, disreputable in society. I hope this gives you hope. If you do have a background of sin and of rebellion, Christ is willing to take any that will turn and come to him. There is no sinner too far away from Christ's mercy, if you will, but let go of your sin. Like these evil tax collectors and sinners, you too can be saved. There is hope for you. But you know, when he calls us to repent and follow him, we can't keep our sin too. He intends to change us. He intends to make us like Christ. Even though he's willing to take any and every person, regardless of their background, and save them, he's not going to leave us where we are. He's going to change us. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity gives a wonderful illustration of this. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. Imagine yourself being a house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, and he's stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. And you knew that those jobs needed doing. And so you are not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts terribly and doesn't seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one that you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here. He's putting on an extra floor there. He's running up towers. He's making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. While Jesus is willing to accept any sinner that will come to him, you cannot come to him on your terms. And if you come to him, he's going to change you. Your life may get turned upside down like It did with these disciples. But in the end, you will look back and you will say, it was all for good. And you will never regret anything that you gave up to follow Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he came for sinners like us. We thank you that he came not to judge and to condemn, but to cleanse, to forgive, and to call us to repentance and faith in him. Thank you that he calls us to follow him and to be changed by him, to be able to once again reflect something of what you are like and image you with our lives. Pray that you would make disciples of each and every one of us. We pray that we would follow Christ, both in this life and all the way home. We pray that we would be the kind of gospel community that offers salvation and forgiveness and cleansing to anyone that would come. And we pray that you would do this for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.